Um, I want to say happy Father's Day to you dads. Um, I This is an unusual Father's Day for me. I haven't even really wrapped my head around the fact that it is Father's Day and stuff. Um, but I hope, dads, that you've been a little bit pampered and spoiled already or that there are great plans in your future to be. Um, you know, it wouldn't be a, a surprise to you or a mystery that at faith, uh, we highly esteem the role of husbands and fathers in our church culture. And I, I honestly believe, it's not just a pandering thing or something we just throw out there and say, but I honestly believe that society will regret the sidelining of our men and our uh, husbands and the roles of fathers that we have. And uh, we just pray and hope that it's not too long or too late down that path that our country would wake up and and, and recognize the important role that dads have in uh, in the the structure of our society and all that God has built into the family, um, and that goes the same. We said the same thing on Mother's Day. You know, just the role that parents play in the shaping and the guiding, the forming of children, especially in a day and age that is so upside down and so wayward in what they see in terms of values and principles. All that God has aligned uh, for the for the family that we largely ignore. And so, dads, your role is important. You matter not only to us as a church, but you matter to your families. So don't believe the lies of the enemy that would uh, seek to relegate you in your role. So we thank you, dads, for being who you are and following the voice of the Lord in your life. I'm saying all that as an apology because I've got the worst text for Father's Day in the history of all preaching. Because uh, I don't have a Father's Day message for you. I did the same thing to mom, so I'm trying to keep it even. You know, we stuck with the book of Acts on Mother's Day. We preached what was on the schedule and things. I'm terrible at this. So uh, so I apologize, dads, ahead of time that um, there isn't a message specifically targeted towards you. But at least maybe your toes aren't getting stepped on today for that regard. So there you go. Um, Quickly, before we get into our text, I also just want to acknowledge a great dad and somebody who's been a dear friend of mine for a long time who I would say is visiting, but he's kind of never really left, especially from our hearts and things. I want to um, welcome my friend, many of your friend, uh, Scott Ludick, back in our midst uh, this morning. And so thank you, Scott. Um, and, uh, and, and his two sons who, you know, a long time ago, I've known them and just been so young and all these guys. And now they're old. I just don't, I mean, um, they're mature. Um, no, but they're, they're just great guys and everything. And so, um, just welcoming back the Ludics and, uh, the privilege and the blessing it is to catch up with them again. And the, many of you have been praying for their family and, and just seeing how, um, the Lord has been, uh, holding them together and leading them in the time of Amy's departure in such a way of which she was such an amazing, uh, presentation of faithfulness and endurance and kindness to others. And that's who she's always been. And so even in the midst of, of cancer and all that, um, uh, brought such challenge to her life, to put it extremely mildly, she remained who she was, and I'm sure uh, by Scott's own account even just grew tremendously in that. And so their family has been in our prayers, and we've brought them before you on a regular basis, and just appreciate how they've lived their lives for the glory of God before us and allowed us to carry that with them. So um, we, will, we are in, in talks and planning a service for August and so we'll be giving you details so that you can participate and come and celebrate the amazing life that Amy has lived. And, uh, and so we can have an uh, aspect of that closure as well. So just glad that you guys are with us this morning. 
we are coming into, as we transition into Acts chapter 8, uh, we're coming into a season where many of us will be uh, engaging in open flame. We're going to have uh, fire pits going, we'll have grills going and things, and it's no... Um, it's no mystery to us how flames can quickly spread. Our fire departments will become more on alert. They'll have the little messages on their sign about when it's safe to burn, when it isn't, how to keep con- uh, the flame contained and things. We understand what things like um, wind can do to the flames that we are producing. What we are enjoying for the moment can quickly become an absolute catastrophe. And uh, I was even just looking up some of this. It's all very basic stuff, but the National Weather Service was talking about how these things go, and they're trying to educate the public and things, and they're trying to help us to see that uh, oxygen coming and just feeding the uh, the uh, the fuel to the flame and how it spreads by carrying heat. What the what the flame is doing, we've seen it do this. It's almost like if you could per, uh, give it some personality, it is looking for the driest source closest to it, so it can act like a kindling. How can I attach myself to it and burn it up to consume that fuel source? And we know that the the driving factor in the direction of any spread of a flame is wind. And Jesus had told his disciples that the message of God's forgiveness, that his coming to reclaim the world for his own, that he would come and redeem a people to himself, that that message of God's forgiveness would move out. It would start at home. It would start with the Jew first, and then it would move out to the Gentile. He had given us the great commission of going into the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to produce followers of Jesus Christ in what we are discovering in Acts is referred to as the way to, to follow in his, in his footsteps. And Jesus had come after his resurrection and met with his closest followers and said that it won't just stay here. I'm going to advise you. I'm going to command you to stay in Jerusalem till the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, you won't be able to contain the fire spread. It will, it will just continue to consume the whole region. It'll be Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So it will continue to consume whatever is driest, nearest proximity, and it'll attach to that fuel source source and burn it up. The wind that would push those flames forward is what we are discovering are the flames of persecution. They would act as this, as this catalyst to the continual spread of all that God intended to set the region on fire. And our sermon series has been broken up into what does it take to set a city on fire? That's been our focus at faith is how do we, how do we see Waterville turned upside down for the cause of Jesus Christ? And as it, as the flame uh, has a, a, an opportunity to build and to burn, where is that going to go and how is that spread? And we're seeing it commensurate with, with what's going on in Acts chapter eight is now it's time to spread it out to the region. How do we set a region or a country on fire? The Lord in Acts eight is uh, up to this point has utilized the fear and hatred of ruling councils and leaders known as the Sanhedrin. They saw the power of the apostles growing. They saw their effectiveness gaining uh, traction with the population. 
And they said, boy, the more they're listening to them, the less they'll listen to us. We've had a good thing going. We've been running our, our high priesthood like a mob family we've discussed. And so the, the family is being threatened. You know, sorry for the terrible. I don't even know who that's supposed to be. It's who I think of when I think of the family, you know. So the, the Sanhedrin is feeling that threat. So out of fear and out of retaliation, they're coming in hard on the apostles to shut them down. The Holy Spirit can't be stopped. Then we saw a couple weeks ago that there were complaints from those that were the Hellenists who have joined the church, who were Greek-speaking Jews from the outer regions coming, migrating to the holy city to kind of check that bucket list item off, to put it very mildly. It had much more significance than that to them. And many of them were were uh, losing spouses, and so there were widows and widowers in their bunch. And because of their Greek-speaking um, background and some of those cultural differences and stuff, they often felt left out of the distribution of the care for the poor and the widows. And so a complaint comes to the apostles and says, hey, some of our, our Hellenists are getting skipped, and we kind of referred to it as being in the sandwich line and things. And so so it, rather than being dismissed or set aside, the apostles said, we need to give some attention to that. We can't have any threats to our unity as a body of believers. So pick seven men of good reputation who speak like them, who think like them, who understand their challenges and considerations. We're going to give them a voice and make sure that they aren't neglected. This is all part of the Lord's plan. This is all part of the fire spread. And we think, well, it's just making sure sandwiches get served, but it's more than that. And now we're about to be introduced, although briefly this morning, we're about to get introduced to this religious zeal or this very misguided fervor of a guy named Saul, who, yes, would eventually become the the great apostle Paul, one who would be uniquely gifted and, and qualified to lead the church for the future and to educate us and to help us be instructed. But at this point, he's Saul, and Saul is a misguided zealot, somebody who is off the charts in terms of an overachiever, who he thinks he's doing this for the cause of God Almighty and to impress his peers in his religious establishment. So verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us that Saul was the one who approved the execution of Stephen. That as Stephen, as one who was just appointed to represent the complaints of the Hellenists and make sure we don't skip anybody else's needs, and he wasn't an apostle or one of the elders, if you will, but he said he's gifted, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Let's uh, let's put him in that position. It quickly turns into Stephen reacting in a moment's time, being able to give the gospel in such an incredible fashion, only to pay for it with his life. And the text tells us that Saul, as the leader of the uh, the drive, the force behind the persecution of the church, was there to approve it, to check it off, saying, yeah, I think this is a good thing that we're killing this innocent man, who, while he was dying, shouted for the forgiveness of his executors. So our text continues in verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Pause right here to say that that might look a little bit like they were hesitant to go, but I think this is actually a demonstration of great leadership. 
Because what would lead us to think that the apostles who have been transformed and changed, who are now so bold to stand before the leadership of, of the opposition, would now somehow be hesitant to go into other territories? I really think it's because they, they see that a church has been birthed here. Now it's under intense persecution. It's going to need faithful and strong leadership. And so we're going to continue for the moment to have Jerusalem be our headquarters. And so they stay behind to make sure everything's going to be okay. Devout men during this time buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Again, just to pause for a second. This is unheard of for somebody who is accused of being a traitor. And yet we have Luke identifying for us here that devout men who loved Stephen, perhaps knew him from before, thought enough of what they had just witnessed to say, I don't care that he was accused by those uh, in charge. I don't care that they were so angry that they were blocking their ears and they were gnashing their teeth and they drove him out of the city and they bludgeoned him with stones to see him die. We don't care. We're going to cry about this. This is worth our lament. But Saul was busy ravaging the church in verse three and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There's a lot we can say, and we don't have the time to this morning about what Paul was equipped to do what he was. He was a rising star in religious circles. And I, as I said before, he's completely dedicated to his craft of, of what he was um, aspiring to in leadership in these circles. They were all impressed with him. I'm sure great opportunity to show how valuable he was to the ruling council. And so there was no shortage of his drive, but something sunk into him during Stephen's death, as we referred to that a lot of the points of Stephen's message come through in Paul's theology later on after his conversion. But while he is ravaging the church, while he's leading people off to prison, the one thing that I want us to anticipate is that the measured height of Saul's zeal, as high up as we see him going with his aggressiveness, is as low as we will see him go with humility before the cross. He will have a complete turnaround before this is all over. What Paul is going to discover, I should say what Saul is going to discover before he's renamed Paul, is that temporary power cannot threaten what Jesus holds together for all of eternity. When Jesus saves us as individuals, he seals us by the Holy Spirit. That stamp of approval, that stamp of ownership, you belong to me. Jesus warns those, don't fear what they can do, those that threaten to kill the body. You should fear the one who can damn the soul to hell for all of eternity. And that one who can do that has forgiven you and loves you and has saved you. He sealed you for all of eternity. And he's done that to his church because the church isn't a building. It's a collection of people. It's a family, a body. And so that temporary power, that real threats, physical pains and fears that we have from folks like Saul and others that we encounter is only a temporary power and can therefore only threaten what lives in the temporary, not the eternal. So in just a couple of points with the limited time that we have left, I want us to see that the Holy Spirit's power that's on demonstration here in our text is greater than all other powers. And it's the only thing capable of healing us 
where our greatest sickness lies, and that's within. So let's start there. How the Holy Spirit power reaches within us to meet the needs that we really have. So far, we've seen a contention with all these outside forces, Sanhedrin, um, some of the cultural barriers. We've seen some of the attack from within the church with Ananias and Sapphira being less than honest about where they're at. So there's an attack from outside with Satan trying to pollute the integrity of the church, all of these things. And now Saul is figure uh, as physically dragging men and women out of their homes, leading them to prison. We'll see in Acts 22 that it's even clarified that he's leading them unto death in many cases. And we saw him oversee the death and the stoning of Stephen. So there's a very real physical threat that's happening on the outside. But now Philip is about to move into the area of Samaria. And now there are these racial differences. There are these cultural differences that carry its own threat itself. I don't know if anybody noticed that that's going on out there in the world right now. Cultural differences. We don't all agree on everything. That so many discussions about our racial differences, our backgrounds, all those sorts of things. These things are threats to the expansion of the gospel. And it's important for us to know where we are in this time in which we live. There's an extreme animosity that's built up between the Jew and the Samaritan. You might remember, if you were here when we were going through the Gospel of John, that Jesus found it necessary to lead the disciples through Samaria. And they were all looking down their noses going, why do we need to go to that place? Like, those people are not on our level. We don't have anything to do with them. And Jesus says, I have to go through there. And we know from the Scriptures, because he had an appointment, nobody else knew it, including the woman at the well. And he meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan who had had a train wreck past of failed relationships. And she was the town gossip in the sense of the the fodder for all the town gossip. And she was ashamed and she was hardened and, and all of these things. And Jesus had an appointment sent by the father to meet her, to give her forgiveness and grace and a healing from within. And she I express that we as Samaritan people have been looking for the Messiah. And when he comes, he'll be able to tell us everything. And he said, I'm speaking to you right now. And so she has an actual literal conversion where she starts to believe that this Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah. Not being able to contain it or keep it to herself. She runs back into the village, tells everybody, I met somebody at the well who's told me everything I've ever done. And I think it's the Messiah. You should come check it out for yourself. And before we leave the gospel of John, we see that they have come back in droves to see who he is to investigate. They look down on the Samaritans because they were uh, part of their history. There was captivity hundreds of years prior. Again, we don't have the time to go through all the history here, but God had said, don't intermingle with your captors. And yet they started marrying some of the people of that culture of those nations. Later on, the southern part of the kingdom is captured of Israel. And they, again, hearing that warning, don't intermingle. They said, okay, we won't. And they didn't marry anybody there. So they remained pure. So they started looking at those that didn't down their noses and say, oh, those bunch of half-breeds and all these kinds of things. They looked way down on them. And they had all this animosity for hundreds of years. There was conflict over who would help build the temple. Uh, Samaritan said, we'll, we'll, Samaria said, we'll build our own temple. And they just fought constantly. And Philip says in verse 5, well, he doesn't say, but he goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord grabbed stones and chased them out and said, who are you? You look down on us. We hate you. No, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip has some clout with them. He's a Hellenist. He's an outsider to the, um, you know, the real Jewish core there and everything. And so they trust him a little bit more. They've, they, they're warming up to his message. They're receiving him. But they're also experiencing this freeing up from inside that the demons that are coming out of them, it's like they're being ripped out of them. They're coming out screaming, kicking and screaming. And so the Samaritan people are hearing the message and receiving it, and they're finding peace on the inside. I find it interesting that despite all of our medical advancements today, all the great blessings that we have through technology and care and all the things that we don't have to worry about anymore, we as a culture are still desperately most in need of something that will fix the inside. Some kind of peace within what we would call a psychological anxiety or any of these kinds of things that our culture is continuing to chase thing after thing after thing just to be able to find some rest from the inner turmoil. So Philip comes and presents that it's in Christ and they go, oh, okay. They're finding freedom from within because he's meeting the truest needs of the people. We get this indication because Luke records that there was a lot of joy, a lot of celebration. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is what happens when we're liberated from that which has plagued us and held us down all this time. A little bit of a curveball here. We won't spend a lot of time on this. It's important to, to see it and read it. Pastor Tom's going to help with the conclusion of this text in a little bit in our service here. But Acts 8, uh, I'm sorry, back in verse 9 says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. That's probably where all this, I am the great, you know, Houdini or whatever. He's a magician. He's got to call himself great. It's just part of the territory. So they all paid attention to him in verse 10, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Most likely Simon here is an expert in occultic practices, drawing from all sorts of wickedness and things in order to astonish the people and to impress them from the outside. So he's demonstrating to them all this convincing power. It's got him eating out of the palm of his hand because he's doing some very cool things. He was definitely a celebrity. And because of the part of the culture that was taking place there, there was a lot of a, a loyalty to the following of all that Simon was able to do. We sometimes wonder, like, why would that be so effective, especially when it's going to be proven to be so hollow why is that so effective? Why are we drawn to these demonstrations of power and, and pizzazz and wonderment and things? And I believe it's because people want to be close to power, but where it starts to become a friction is when we call them to submitting to that power. 
All the other things that the world offers that intrigue us or make us go, ooh, that was freaky or that was weird or something. It draws up something that we're created with a sense of awe and wonder. But we don't have to worry about a God who's in charge of everybody, who's got an authority over us. I don't have to surrender to him. So why do people go and and dabble in all of these other kinds of things? Because it promises them a brush with power without asking them to submit or surrender to the God of all creation. And I think that's what's going on here under Simon's um, captivity over the people. So he had been amazing them with his magic. But in verse 12, it says they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and preached his sermon on the mount, he was introducing us to his kingdom. He was saying, you've heard it all this way, but really what it's supposed to look like is this. He was helping them see that God has formed a structure for the good of his people that points to his glory. And when people really encounter the kingdom of God, there's a, there's a satisfaction, there's a, there's a breath of relief that says, you mean there's a better way to do this? most of us came to Christ disappointed with the rules that everybody put out, everybody else put on us because the, the target kept changing. The rules kept changing. There was no sense of, of, of uh, consistency in anything that we were asked or told that we had to give our lives to. And then Jesus comes all underpinnings of grace, but he still presents it to us as somebody who has created you and knows how this whole thing is supposed to go, knows how you're supposed to live. And we go, really? There's answers to this philip preaches about the kingdom of god he doesn't come in as philip the great and goes poof and has all these smoke things and stuff he says there's a better way to live all under the the guidance and the orchestration all into the empowerment of christ tells us that he all he also preached in the name of jesus christ and again because of what jesus did by reaching the woman at the well they knew the name of jesus of nazareth and now they're hearing, you mean they, they, they killed him? They crucified him? He's, he's risen? What are you saying about? We, we heard about all of these things. We saw that God had lit a fire in this woman who was otherwise just shamed and hardened and she hadn't given her life over to anything of meaning. And then all of a sudden God transforms her. She becomes a great evangelist in our city because he chose to use the fire of a forgiven heart to spark a blaze in our town. This is why it's important as we're helping people see the light of Christ. And even for ourselves, we have to look into the severity of our sin. Because when we're brought to the heaviness of what we've done against the glory of God, what we find is that he's so quick and ready to give us that forgiveness, which produces in us an elation of running away from all of the burdens and the heaviness that we carried before. And this is what they saw in this woman. And no doubt it was having a transformation in that area and in that culture so that they were ready to hear the conclusion to the story. So Philip comes in his humility because he's that guy. He was picked and chosen as being somebody who could serve the people. And so he comes without pretense. He comes as the exact opposite of Simon the Great. And they're more captivated by what he presents than what the magician was doing all this time. So they were baptized, both men and women. And so much so was the movement in verse 13 that even Simon the Great himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
That last sentence is really the key that'll help us understand the rest of the text. Again, Pastor Tom's going to read that for us. But really what's going on here is Simon is more caught up in the way the whole thing looks. He hasn't quite left this idea of wanting to dazzle and be popular and all that sort of thing. So he's really looking at this as an opportunity to get his foot in the door and to get some of that power for himself to keep the shtick going. That's what Simon wants to accomplish here. But it's interesting. He even went into the waters of baptism. He functioned and looked like a member of the community. That happens, doesn't it, from time to time? What Simon needed to understand is that the Holy Spirit and the power that comes from the Holy Spirit can only come from above. I want to go back into something that's really important here before we conclude our time. And that's how the Holy Spirit was continuing to bridge this cultural divide. So we go back into verse 14. And see that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. This is getting really cool. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to geek out a little bit on this from a theological perspective and stuff. This is really, really cool. Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Clarification from Luke here is that he had not yet, he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Holy Spirit so much since we've started the book of Acts. And it's a great uh, conversation to have theologically and to give um, to give attention to that third person of the triune Godhead. We've talked a lot about how the spirit works and then cautioned in some of the ways in which we don't believe from scripture, the spirit works. And we understand that our brothers and sisters in Christ have different views theologically on how some of these happen. And some of those views that are different than us come directly from a passage like this. So my caution when we were back in Acts 2 talking about the time of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrived and with great power, my caution uh, then applies now. So I'll just be repetitive. It's important for us. Not to derive our doctrine, that is the order we take from the scripture and how it informs our practice. It's important for us to not take our doctrine solely from narrative portions of scripture. In other words, we could easily say, if it happened in the Bible, then it should be happening now. But if we're being honest intellectually, we'd see a whole lot of things in the pages of scripture that we don't expect to happen now. So theologically, something has changed. There are things that clearly happen that scripture records, but we can't just say if it happened, then it must be happening now or it's supposed to happen now. We have to allow the rest of scripture to help us understand what parts are for today and which parts have passed. In particular, Acts 1 through 10, the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts is presenting to us a very unique shift in the, in, in the Lord's plan to redeem people to himself. This is the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of the apostolic era where these men, these 12 men that have been handpicked by the Lord to be uniquely empowered to represent the glory of God, to, um, to evangelize the world around him and to instruct the church in matters of doctrine and theology, that that's happening with them uniquely in this time period. Some things would be things that we might still see happening today and other things we won't. What we can't do is see what's happening in these 10 chapters and think it all translates or correlates. 
There's a shift that's taking place. The gospel is not only being uniquely empowered through the apostles, but it's starting to move in territory that God hasn't impacted before. He's going out to the Gentiles and he's now saying, I once had a people and now I'm saying to all of those all over the world who will receive my son and his payment for their sins will be my people. He had prophesied that this would happen in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And now it's taking place. We have to be um, patient or, or cautious as we're going through the events here and say, what is he trying to do in this transitory period? God is making marks of distinction at key intervals in his plan. And I believe that's what's happening here because we've seen from the rest of scripture. And we studied this again when we were looking at Acts chapter two, that the Holy Spirit is given to a believer at the time of confession, at the time that we come before the Lord and receive his salvation, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is present in all believers. If we take this passage in isolation, we say it must be a second thing that comes with either enough faith or the laying on of hands of certain individuals or something along those lines. I think something different is being taught here. This isn't just me saying this. This isn't my speculation. This is, this is um, in good company uh, theologically. That something unique is happening here when it says the, they sent Peter and John to go to Samaria because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to them, even though they were receiving the message of Philip. Peter, of course, is the, the chief voice at this point in the establishment of the church. His authority carries a lot of weight. Not so much that Peter's walking around that way, but they all recognize this guy's been radically transformed. He has been gifted on high by the Lord. His, his statements, his actions represent us and they represent us well. John happens to be one of the guys that was nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. James and John, two guys who had it out for Samaritans at a key point in Jesus' ministry. They um, were offended that the Samaritans were rejecting them. And what did they say? Lord, grant us permission. We want to call fire down from heaven on these guys and consume them. If you've seen The Chosen, that's a pretty comical part, even though it's a very heavy moment, but it's kind of a comical part in the story in the way they portray it. Probably not too far from how it could have actually happened. But these men, Peter, John, others, are radically transformed. The resurrection happened. It's all real. We don't get caught up in our silly squabbles anymore. The Holy Spirit has come and transformed us. And now we're saying things of much greater importance than like, hey, God, can we call fire out and burn these people up? Now they care about things differently. Now they believe that this message is for everybody. So the church says, hey, something unique is happening in Samaria. Samaria, you know those people that we're supposed to hate? God's moving there. We want our chief representative and somebody who has a track record of, if you looked at his old Twitter files, you'd be like, oh, he's a racist. We want that guy, instead of canceling, let's send him to the problem and let's put his stamp of approval that God is doing something unique here and we endorse it. God, it seems though, seems as though he sent them specifically to have to physically lay hands on them and say, receive the gift of the spirit. Showing everybody in that territory something different's going on here. But the gospel is moving in places that we never thought it could, you see, because cultural barriers, whatever barriers, not dismissing what's right and wrong. Please don't overhear what I'm saying or read between the lines. But all of the reasons why we think, ah, they won't accept Jesus. 
They're too far gone. Any of those kinds of things, cultural barriers are no threat to the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the lesson that Simon needed to learn. He's going to, as we're going to see in our text, he's going to think he can just purchase this power. But God's doing something so much more authentic because Jesus leads us through physical and cultural dangers to spread his forgiveness and his grace. It's his message. It's his power that we receive. We're just simply obedient to it. We get to participate in it. All those guys did was they just took the assignment and went to Samaria. And they were involved in something that was transformative and cool in the culture and that shift of what was going on in the gospel because they were available to it. That's all Philip did. He says, we're on the run now, so I'm going to go to Samaria. I'm going to give them the gospel. I don't think they have it yet. He goes and he gives them the rest of the story and they receive it. And so this morning we can celebrate that the same God who loves the distant, who loves the lost, who loves the wayward is the same one who loves us, who rescued us, who crossed all of those barriers of our own culture, our own resistance, our own, ah, I don't need you here. And he crosses all of that to show us his grace and forgiveness. And we're blown away by it and we receive it and we're transformed in the process. Would you stand? We're going to continue in our time of being led by the worship team who is made up of, with the exception of Elijah, who's now an old geezer, um, made up of all of our young people who are assisting us this morning and leading us. And so let's just pray about these things and then continue in our time of worship. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us around your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would hear um, what you have for us as the gospel moves forward. Help us to be obedient to the place that you would call us. Thank you for giving us this church and this faithful fellowship of believers. May we look after one another and to, uh, to encourage one another with the opportunity that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning again. Now, as Pastor Brent said, we're doing things a little bit differently today, and this gives me a perfect opportunity uh, not only to just close the text that Pastor Brent was preaching through, but also gives me a great opportunity to talk to you about something that is very important to the story of the early church in the book of Acts and something that remains crucial to the story of the church even today, and that is baptisms. Now, in Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus He meets with his disciples and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that is the verse known as the Great Commission. That is the job that the church has to do from Jesus himself, and it's not going to be completed until he returns. And he's not back yet, so we are still on the clock. The story of the church is still being written, so to speak, so we'd better be clear on exactly what we are supposed to be doing so that we don't deviate from the script that Jesus gave us. And the Great Commission, it tells us what we are to do. It says that we are to go out and we are to make disciples, And that's not all it says. It says that we are to baptize them. Now, we're going to be having our baptism service coming up on August 20th. We do that every year at this church. Um, So what exactly is baptism? Well, the word baptize, the definition of it means to immerse. It means to submerge. 
All right, that's the definition, but what does it look like as the church actually practices it? Did, did Jesus give his followers a mission of sneaking up behind people on the dock or giving a, sh- a shove into the pool? And it's like, okay, you're immersed. You're baptized. Is that what baptism is? Is that the Great Commission? Well, no. Of course, baptism is something more than that. It's more than just being immersed. It's not something that we force on someone else. We should only baptize people who believe. And that's also why we don't baptize infants, why we don't baptize young children at faith. Because biblically speaking, again, belief is not something that one person can choose for another. So if that's your circumstance, just like mine, I was baptized as an infant. If you've been baptized without believing, even by well-intentioned parents in a church, you really haven't been baptized in the biblical sense. All that really happened was that you were given a very fancy bath. Now, sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, um, so I've been baptized as an infant. Should I be baptized again? And I always, I always say, no, no, you shouldn't be baptized again. You should be baptized for the first time because what you had earlier wasn't actually a baptism. It doesn't matter if the whole family was there, a priest was there for an elaborate ceremony and you got all kinds of presents. Again, if the one who was being baptized doesn't have faith, it simply is not a baptism. I've also heard of a church that had a tank in the back of the truck and they had a small parade and they drove around town and they offered free hot dogs to anybody who would consent to being baptized that day, anyone off the street. Now, it wasn't a forced thing. People agreed to it. So is that baptism? Is that fulfilling the Great Commission? Again, no. I think we all know that there's still something missing from that. So what's missing in the person who got shoved into the pool What's missing in the baby that got sprinkled or the person who got baptized for a hot dog? What's missing is belief. What's missing is belief. But what we just heard from Pastor Brent kind of complicates things a little bit. It says that Simon the magician, it says even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. That's what it says in Acts 13. It says that Simon believed. But if we read on in that text we see that Simon was never really part of the fold. It says in verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter, he said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall, in the bitterness, and in the bonds of iniquity. So the key here is that even though Simon believed, in verse 21, we, we see that his heart was still not right with God. He had not repented of his wickedness, he still wanted that power for power's own sake to glorify his own name. Remember, he was called Simon the Great, the Great of God. So it's plain to see that his belief, it was shallow. It did not reach to the depths of causing him to repent from his sin. And Jesus, he gives us a glimpse of what this kind of shallow belief among his disciples, among those who look like disciples at first, when he tells the parable of the sower. Now, this parable talks about the different responses that some people have. 
um, who receive the gospel, which is represented by a seed. You know, some people it falls on fertile ground and it produces a wonderful harvest, and with others, not so much. Uh, it says in Matthew 13, verse 3, and he told them many things in a parable, speaking of Jesus, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Now other seeds, they fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil and immediately sprang up, and since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Then in verse 7, I think we see Simon's condition here. It says, other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. So that parable is a little mystifying still. So Jesus gives an explanation. He expands on it. He explains how the thorns choke out this shallow belief. In verse 22, he says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. This was the case of Simon. Simon was within the church. He had all the appearances of belief at first, but but then it's proven unfruitful. He wasn't serious about repenting. He was still craving after power, and he was still trusting in money to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit instead of trusting in the grace of God. The deceitfulness of power and wealth had choked out the word, and his heart was not at all at right with God. Simon's belief was not authentic. And this is why when we baptize at faith, we're careful about the way we go about baptism. We don't want to give anyone a false assurance of salvation as we baptize them. We only have to look as far as the story of Simon Magician to see that association with the church does not ensure salvation. And baptism itself does not ensure salvation. Remember when Jesus was crucified, he's hanging there on the cross and the believing thief that was hanging there next to him, he was promised paradise. He was not baptized. He died before he was baptized. And as we just heard, Simon the magician, he went to hell, as far as we know, without ever being, I mean, with baptism. He was baptized and he still didn't get to heaven. There is nothing saving. There is nothing holy about the water of baptisms itself. And in fact, in believer's baptism, the water It represents death. Romans 6 helps us understand that. Verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Baptism is an expression of our union with Christ's death and burial. Christ was plunged into the water of God's judgment on our behalf on the cross to pay for our sins, and it killed him. And for us, our immersion into the water of baptism, that's an acknowledgement of our faith in Jesus' death and burial on our behalf to pay for our sins. So in a sense, when we go under the water of baptism, we are portraying our union with Jesus, with, with his death and with his burial. And then in the next verse, we see that our baptism portrays another kind of union with Christ, union with his resurrection, It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we come up out of the waters of baptism, we are portraying that we are raised to a new life. We're back from the dead. We are living a new life unto God. I heard a story um, about a missionary in Africa, and he was part of a small baptism service. 
and a few of his friends and uh, family members, they were standing on the shore watching another missionary do the baptisms. And the, uh, the preacher, he raised his hands, he read the scripture from Romans that we just read, and he baptized people. And when the first convert came up out of the water, this guy was just shocked. He was amazed. He was rejoicing. He was looking down, he was looking down, looking up, looking all around, screaming and shouting. And then the second person was baptized, and the same thing. It was just this incredible exuberance, and on and on and on and on. They were all shocked, and they were all joyful. And afterwards, the missionary who was watching from the shore, he asked the guy, what was that all about? Why were they so, why were they so excited? Why were they freaking out like that? And the baptizer answered. He said, I haven't been able to completely communicate in this tribe's language. He didn't know, he didn't know the language yet. He wasn't fluent. He said, they heard the scripture I gave them, but they didn't understand the symbolic nature of it. When I told them they would be buried with him through baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, they actually thought that the act of baptism had killed them physically, and then God has resurrected them. And that's what they believed. Now, we don't physically die when we are baptized, but we are called to die in a certain way. We read about that in verse 6. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old self, our old self is indeed crucified and dead. The power of sin is broken by the death of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been brought down to the grave by Christ. And just like Jesus left our sins in the grave, our baptism is a picture of how we have left our sins behind us. Christ went down to the grave and then he came up. We go down into the water and then we come up. It's a picture of going from death to life. Sin leads us down to death. Christ leads us up to life. So there's a change in direction that is expressed by baptism. We go down and then we come up. That's a picture of repentance. Now, the word repent, it means to turn. And when we receive a new life of Christ, we have turned away from the sin that Christ has carried down into the depths of the grave, and we have turned in a new direction up towards the light as we come up out of the water. Now, our part is to let our sins go. So if you're still clinging to your sins, which are in the depths of the grave, how could you ever expect to come up into the light? Now, repenting, it doesn't mean that you're sinlessly perfect from this point on, but it does mean that you are in a state of turning away from the old and looking towards Jesus for the forgiveness and the grace that is needed to conform more and more into his image. Again, not perfection, but turning from sin and looking to Jesus. So if you are not willing to turn from sin, the baptism just isn't for you. Unrepentance does not fit with the portrayal that baptism paints. You can't in good conscience say you've died to sin if you have no intention of leaving it behind. Again, being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you are perfect all of a sudden, but turning away from sin and looking towards Christ. And this kind of life, this kind of life points other people towards God. And Jesus wants to put that on display because Jesus wants followers that everyone can see. In Matthew 10, 32, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who was in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who was in heaven. There is no secret disciple 
of Jesus Christ. And so at faith, the way we practice baptism in the past is the way we've helped people acknowledge Jesus before others is that we've asked people to publicly share their testimony, which means talking about the story of how God has saved you. Whether sharing that testimony in person before they're baptized on Sunday morning or recording it on video and sharing it before the church in the weeks approaching baptism. But this year, the shepherding team, the elder team, the the leadership team of faith, we've come to realize that the intensity of that kind of sharing, that's not for everyone. There are other ways to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. So if you're thinking about being baptized, but sharing your testimony in this very public way is not an option for you, we recognize that the act of being baptized itself, that is your public declaration, your public acknowledgement before others that you belong to the Lord. So here's the way that we'll handle baptisms going forward. On Baptism Sunday, we'll ask people who will be baptized a series of questions before they get in the baptismal tank. I'm going to read those in just a moment and encourage you to think about your answers as I read them. Not just people who are thinking about being baptized, but everybody. Because these statements, they really point to the heart of what it is to follow Jesus. So read read along with me and think about your answers to these questions. Do you acknowledge that you are a sinner, deserving of eternal punishment, and that you can do nothing to earn God's favor by your own efforts? Second question is, do you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God's one and only remedy for your sin, the only provision for your salvation? And the third question, do you acknowledge that by your identification with Christ, you have died to sin and were raised to newness of life in him? And lastly, do you acknowledge that your life is no longer your own, but belongs body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So if your answers are yes to those, and you have not been baptized as a believer, then sign up for baptisms today. I've got a sheet out at the welcome desk. And if your answer is no, or if your answer is, I don't know, I don't understand the question, then myself or one of our church elders, we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to explain things further. That's part of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is not pretending that you have it all figured out. Um, nothing is more rewarding for a pastor or an elder Um, than helping people understand the salvation that God offers in Christ. So don't be afraid to ask if you don't know. So again, like I said, your affirmative answers to those questions on Baptism Sunday, your your yes answers, um, and the actual act of being baptized, that is your public proclamation of faith. However, for anybody who still does want to share a story of the Lord's work in your life, whether it's Sunday morning um, as you're being baptized or on the screen, recorded video, I'd still strongly encourage you to do that. We would love to hear what the Lord is doing in your life. And also along those lines, even if you've been baptized previously, but you've got something that you want to share, we'd love for you to share that story of what God is doing in your life as part of the baptism service. That's exactly what we did last year, and it was incredible to hear what the Lord is doing and then praise him together for it as a church. So again, let me know if you've got something that you want to share with the church on Baptism Sunday. Okay, for those who want to be baptized, I'll talk about a couple next steps here. Uh, First, sign up at the welcome desk. And second, because we are a church that wants to make sure that everyone we baptize is actually ready, we're going to ask you to come to a class next month to hear some more 
teaching on baptism. Don't have time to cover it all today. Um, so we'll have a class and we'll, we'll have a chance for you to ask questions. We'll have a Q&A. Um, and you'll be able to talk things over with one of the friendly members of our shepherding team um, just to help you decide if you are indeed ready for believer's baptism. And a next step that we all can take, this entire church, um, we can all pray. So at 3.20, um, when your alarm goes off to pray, or whenever you pray, we can all pray that God would move powerfully in the hearts of those whom he is calling into the waters of baptism this year. So if you are a follower of Jesus that has not been baptized yet as a believer, you've got some things to consider, you've got some things to pray about, I want you to pray about taking this next step of obedience to what Christ commands in that great commission. But when you pray, I don't want you to pray about whether or not God wants you to be baptized. It is already very clear in his word that he does. So don't ask God questions you already know the answer to as some kind of a stall tactic. God sees through that. So here's what I want you to pray for. I want you to pray for courage. I want you to pray for boldness to step out in faith and follow the Lord's call in obedience. I want you to pray for the, the faith and for the strength that it takes to obey the Lord, even if you don't really feel like doing it. And even if you've been a disciple for decades, decades, and you've never been baptized, it's always a good time to start obeying the Lord. And I promise you, when you sign up, I'm not going to roll my eyes at you and say, what took you so long? I'm just going to be happy another believer is answering the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your time to obey him. Now, as the worship team makes their way back up front to close the service, um, let's again look at the words of Jesus, and he can be the one to talk you down off the fence. Now, let's let him do the, let's let him do the convincing for us. It says in Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Looking at that verse, verse 20, it tells us that disciples are to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And in verse 19, he commands his disciples to be baptized. So let's make it really, really simple. And when you ask yourself the question, why should I be baptized? The best answer is because Jesus says so. Now don't confuse simple, trusting obedience with legalism. Well, part of Trusting Jesus Christ as Lord is saying, yes, Lord, and then obeying him. Now, as we've been reading in the story of the church in the book of Acts, the gospel started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea, into Samaria, and it's reaching all the way to the ends of the earth, even all the way to Waterville, Maine. So if the gospel has come to you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are his disciple, then you are called to make an appearance in the greatest drama ever written, it's the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth, and baptism is your scene. Now, it's not your only appearance that you're going to make in the story of the church, but it is the one appearance that we are all commanded by Jesus himself to make. And when Jesus talks about baptizing disciples all the way to the end of the earth, you are included in that. He is talking about you. So answer him in faith. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, God, thank you. Thank you that you are a God that is still working. You are a God who is calling people unto yourself, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Lord, as you say, a special possession unto yourself. Lord, what an incredible, incredible undeserved honor it is to be included in this family that you call your church. And what an honor it is to be included in the story of the Great Commission. So Lord, I ask that you would give boldness and courage to those that you are calling into the waters of baptism. And I ask that by their obedience, that all who witness their baptism would see and they would take note that you are a God who forgives sins. You are a God who changes lives. You are a God who gives eternal life. Lord, as we each take our part in your eternal kingdom, you've given us a job to do. You're calling us out of the darkness for a reason so that we may declare your greatness to the whole world. So God, cause our hearts to cry out this morning. God, give breath to our lungs so that we may shout your praise, not only today, but all throughout the week, Lord. God, we thank you for hearing our prayer. May you answer it according to your will and not ours, because your plans are always so much better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.